The Nelson Atkins Museum of Art is one of the most beautiful buildings in Kansas City. Driving along Cleaver Boulevard, you get a really good view. There's a sweeping green line that leads up a hill to a massive building with Greek columns and carvings in the stone. It looks like the Supreme Court building or the Parthenon or something. I think for many African-Americans over the years, it's been a beautiful place to simply look at. That street that I mentioned, Emanuel Cleaver Boulevard, is named after this gentleman, Congressman Emanuel Cleaver II. I talked to him over Zoom because of COVID. My wife, who was born and raised in Kansas City, did what a lot of African-Americans did, which was on Sundays after church, after they ate dinner, you're going to have dessert. So this is a big day. It was the only day of the week you had the dessert. They would drive by the Nelson Atkins. Many of the whites who are listening to this may not know about that part of who we are and our history, which was the Sunday drive. And it didn't happen just in Kansas City. It was all over the country. African-Americans went into parts of the community where they frankly were not welcomed. And they would drive up and down the street looking at the stately homes of the wealthy. They'd turn around and go through the plaza and on route back to the east side, there's the Nelson Atkins Museum. And, you know, I think in those situations, the building is either saying, stay out, keep away, or it's welcoming. I think I was in Kansas City probably 15 years before I ever stepped foot in the Nelson Atkins. And I think that's not unusual. You see the little sign there that says Mission Hills, Kansas? So is this the route that you would take? There wasn't a specific path that we took. We just kind of drove around like we're doing now. I haven't been on a Sunday drive in years, so my producer and I decided to go on one. So Mission Hills is, was, and always has been the fancy part town? Yeah, it was, was, is, probably per capita, like one of the richest neighborhoods in the country. I kind of forgot about those Sunday drives. They got a moat. <laughs> I grew up on the east side of Kansas yeah, City. Yeah, that's pretty My dad had this big old car that he loved. It was a mint green Oldsmobile 98 Regency sedan. And we'd all pile into it on Sundays and drive west, looking around and imagining the house we'd want to live in. My dad would pick a house. My mom would pick a house. I'd pick a house. Like a nice green space with a Grecian kind of sculpture with the fountain. It's just there, like just to be pretty. My sister and I would sometimes fight if we wanted the same house. It's really something. They have a park in front of their home. Like they have a whole park <laughs> in front of their I remember home. that as a time of bonding and dreaming as a family. But, you know, at the same time, we knew we'd never live in any of those houses. They look enchanted. (laughs) Like, I mean, doesn't that look like the place where there would be a fairy tale? (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) I just don't remember ever thinking that this was possible for me. Welcome back to A Frame of Mind. This is episode two, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, and I'm your host, Glenn North. Welcome to the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. 
This is Dove, a visitor services officer, or in museum lingo, a VSO. VSOs are the first faces you see when you walk into the Nelson Atkins. They spend all day helping visitors understand the lay of the land. Dove is amazing, even though they say the same thing over and over and over. They keep on smiling. That movement Dove is talking about, City Beautiful, it has a lot to do with why Kansas City looks like it does. Architecture is a form of communication. That's my friend Jake Wagner. He teaches urban studies at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. A lot of people look at it as structure, as physical space, as something that's inert, but it is a form of communication. As if you do stand on the corner and look at the Nelson in relationship to its surroundings, that entire space is designed. It's not an accident. So, if like Jake says, architecture is a form of communication, in my opinion, the Nelson Atkins is sending a message loud and clear. This is an important place where people are doing important things. That's a part of in the early 20th century when Kansas City decided, you know, we don't just want to be a cow town. We want to be the Paris of the Plains. The frame was set by a group of men who were looking to Europe. There's the monumental architecture of the building, which is classical in its form and its relationship to its site. And that's part of the City Beautiful movement. The basic idea of the City Beautiful movement was if people are surrounded by beauty, they'll be inspired to become better humans and live in harmony. The movement had an incredibly passionate following around the late 1800s or early 1900s. You see it in cities like Chicago and Cleveland and Washington, D.C., with all their classical architecture. And it's why there are wide boulevards and green spaces and public fountains everywhere in Kansas City. Our city leaders wanted this to be a sophisticated and cultured place. The Nelson Atkins Museum was born out of that idea. It is a beautiful building on a beautiful street, not far from one of the most expensive pieces of geography in the metropolitan area called the Country Club Plaza. Okay, so hold up here. Congressman Cleaver is talking about a high-end shopping district called the Country Club Plaza. We just call it the Plaza. It was the brainchild of a city planner and real estate developer named J.C. Nichols. He was big on the City Beautiful movement. And those neighborhoods that my family would drive through on Sundays, those are J.C. Nichols' neighborhoods. He basically perfected the concept of the suburbs that we still have today, right here in Kansas City. One of the most expensive pieces of geography in the metropolitan area. If your hometown be large or small, it is still the greatest city in the whole world. My producer found this crazy record from the 1950s. It imagines and reenacts scenes from Kansas City history. Here's one where J.C. Nichols describes his concept of the suburb to William Rockhill Nelson, the founder of the Kansas City Star. 
Well, I don't care much about past history, Mr. Nelson. I care about the future. Kansas City is going to have its first planned residential section. It's going to be the most beautiful part of Kansas City. The section will have its own shopping center. It'll have broad, winding streets, nothing crowded. And after I sell all that land in those homes, I'm going to buy more land close by and build another section. It'll be just as beautiful. One section will be colonial. Another Elizabethan. Another Spanish, maybe. You mean you're going to decide on the type of homes people will live in? That's right. What if people won't buy? Oh, they'll buy when they see them. Once I've finished these first ten acres, nobody with an ounce of sense will want to live anywhere else. Go to it, young man. I'll back you to the hilt. Anything that helps Kansas City will have the help of the Kansas City Star. William Rockhill Nelson liked Nichols' idea because he'd already built a neighborhood of his own, which he called, wouldn't you know, Rock Hill. That's where he lived, and it's where the museum sits today. So Nelson was all for this real estate guy's idea of building pretty houses nearby. Here's Nelson again from that record. The star has a greater purpose in life than merely printing the news. It believes in doing things. Kansas City will someday be the leader of the West if I break my back making it so. Vision, gentlemen, vision. William Rockhill Nelson, you know, he said the star never loses. That's Eric Stafford. He owns a tour company that focuses on local black history. William Rockhill Nelson was 40 years older than J.C. Nichols. So he was like an older, older parent for J.C. Nichols. The two of them together had a huge impact on Kansas City. J.C. Nichols is absolutely critical to understanding American history, not just Kansas City history, because of the role of the real estate industry in promoting a exclusive suburban residential experience to your middle-class Americans. But wait a second. There's just one thing. The properties that he bought and sold, the deeds attached to them contain restrictive covenants that stated if you purchase this property, you cannot rent or sell to a Negro or a Jew. You heard him right. Part of J.C. Nichols' concept of the perfect suburb was to make it white only. And so he used legal language that excluded black folks and Jewish people from his neighborhoods. He commodified racialized space. This is Angel Tucker. She heads up this great educational initiative for high school students called the Race Project KC. We just had a workshop this past week, and students, they were like, I I can't believe this happened. I can't believe that this language still is readable and a part of our history. Here it is in black and white, from Section 10 of the Greenway Fields Homeowners Association. None of the said lots shall be conveyed to, used, owned, nor occupied, by Negroes as owner or tenant. The very first event I went to at the Kansas City, Missouri Public Library, there was a man in the audience that brought his deed and was shaking it, and he's like, it's right here, it's still listed here. That's a stamp that'll never, in a sense, go away. Now, thanks to the Supreme Court, those restrictive covenants can no longer be enforced. But because J.C. Nichols was the most influential real estate developer in town, His racist strategy shaped Kansas City 100%. Nichols shared his industry best practices with high-end residential real estate developers from all over the United States. He exported the idea of the development of all white suburban communities. It was taken to every other major city in this country. 
J.C. Nichols took it national. And by 1970, most Americans had been sold on that model of community of the single family home on a relatively large lot that they were the owners of. Now, there's a lot more to this story, including a long history of redlining and blockbusting and other complicated factors that got us to where we are today. If you want to know more about how all that played out here in Kansas City, I recommend watching Dividing Lines, a 360 video by the Johnson County Library. The structuring of space and the role of race in that process has been there from the very beginning, from the get-go. Wealth in this country is linked to whether or not you, you and your family are able to buy a home. That history defines all of our realities today in terms of our neighborhoods, our schools, the resources that communities have access to. The practice of these things devastated communities, just devastated them. I arrived in Kansas City as a young international student from the nation of Zambia. Zambia is the country where I was born and raised. This is my friend Chaluba Masanda, who works at the Kansas City Museum. I came across this individual, and they asked me where I was from. And that person said, since you're new in town, let me tell you this. And it was a Caucasian man, middle age. He said, since you're new in town, I got one piece of advice for you, son. Whatever you do, do not go east of Troost. Troost Avenue looks like any other street in Kansas City. Nothing special. But because of the curse left behind by those covenants, it's sort of a racial dividing line in Kansas City. For the most part, Black folks live on the east side, white folks on the west. I had just arrived. I had no idea what Troost was. Was Troost a place? Was it a street? I had no idea. So guess what I did? I got on the Troost 25 bus. 99% of everyone on that bus was African-American. So I began to ask myself, why do they look different to the folks in Midtown? And why do the homes on the east side of Troost look different to the homes that are on the plaza? Something ain't right here. Something is not right. Like Jake said earlier, that's no accident. That's urban planning. Whatever the lofty intentions were of the City Beautiful movement, it turns out that beautifying Kansas City meant that some people ended up living in slums. And that ain't no fairy tale. I wrote a poem a while ago about what my city beautiful looks like. And here's an excerpt from it. The poem is called 1745 East 21st Street. The residence of my fondest memories. Red Kool-Aid Captain Crunch memories. Watermelon now or later flavored memories. The call to mind, a simpler time when blinking street lamps called us in for the night while Stevie sang songs in the key of life. And we rode the Ohio Players roller coaster of love before it flew off the track. I'm talking way back. Pre-bloods, pre-crips, pre-crack, pre-autoimmune deficiency syndrome. Yes, those days are long gone. Daddy, Mama, my sister, and me rode proudly in his car, slicing the breeze, headed for French vanilla cones from Velvet Freeze. Then it was on to the Fairyland drive-in for a Friday night. I often wondered who'd win if Superfly and Shaft ever got in a fight. This is my sappy, nostalgic, do-you-remember-when poem. 
my back in the day, by the way, whatever happened to the good old days poem. And I wrote it for me. Because every now and then, even if it's only by thought, you just need to go back home. Now, I do want to be clear about something. The Nelson Atkins Museum isn't inside one of those J.C. Nichols neighborhoods. It's kind of in the middle of the two realities I've been talking about. It's east of the Country Club Plaza, and it's west of Troost. You can walk to either one easily from the museum, so it's kind of at a crossroads. There stands the William Rockhill Nelson Gallery of Art. Yeah, that's right. When old Rock Rib Nelson died, he left enough money to endow an art gallery. Eleven million dollars. He must have known you can't take it with you. But he must have known something else. That money is best used when it's spent on somebody or something you love. And William Rockhill Nelson loved Kansas City. I truly believe that a collection like the Nelson is and should be used every day by everyone. This is Julian, the director of the Nelson Atkins. You know, we have enormous uh, numbers of visitations, but sometimes it's intimidating, the architecture. So all of our efforts is, is saying, no, no, this is for everyone, and it is for you. The power of looking at art at this juncture of our history in this country, it has the possibilities of unlocking and the opportunity to reflect and be more empathetic that it piques your curiosity, your compassion, and also the ability to want to reach to the other. That gives you a sense of tolerance and saying there's no one way of seeing the world. William Rockhill Nelson believed in that too, that art could reach across cultures and help us understand each other. That's why he wanted to build a museum here. Say what you want about the guy. He did put his money where his mouth was. And when he died, J.C. Nichols helped make that dream a reality for Kansas City. He became one of the founding trustees of the Nelson Atkins. His hands were all over decisions, big and small, about what the museum would look like, where it would be, what kind of art it would collect, and who would work there. I've read descriptions of Nichols being sort of the son in business that Nelson never had. This is Tara Laver. She's the archivist at the Nelson Atkins. His ideals and his aspirations for the museum were very lofty, in a good way. One of the documents in the archives that I think is representative of J.C. Nichols is his speech from the dedication of the museum in December of 1933. So I'll just read some of it. May these halls crystallize a greater love for beauty, a fresh enthusiasm for living, May they be a happy, democratic meeting place for all groups, all races, all creeds, all men who call the Middle West their home. So we're trying to reconcile, you know, what he says in this speech with some of his other actions. He really is a little bit of an enigma, I would say. How do we tell the story of Kansas City and be honest about it? 
we have to talk about what's beautiful and what's ugly and everything in between. The main pioneers with all their contributions and what they built and, and the city beautiful movement. We can celebrate them in one aspect, but you and I and everyone else in Kansas City, we're still living with the effects of what these individuals did 100 years ago, 60 years ago, 40 years ago, 10 years ago. Not everything in Kansas City's history is should I say, pretty. Some of it is difficult. I think that is the starting place is to recognize the city beautiful and ask the question for whom, for whom was the city beautiful created and was it truly inclusive or was it exclusionary? I'm going to be honest here. That mess that Jake and Chaluba are talking about is in our walls. It's in our streets and it's in all those pretty fountains that we have all over town. So when a museum like the Nelson Atkins tries to reach out and be genuinely welcoming to communities like mine, they have a lot to overcome. When your building looks like the Parthenon, it is inspiring, no doubt. But not everybody feels like they have the right to walk inside, no matter how many people like Dove are standing in the lobby. There is a fountain in a park right by the museum. Standing next to it, you feel like you could be in Paris or Rome. It used to be called the J.C. Nichols Memorial Fountain. But in 2020, the Parks and Recreation Board voted to take his name off of it. Next item on the agenda is Resolution 31460, considering board of this resolution supporting the removal of the name J.C. Nichols from the fountain located between J.C. I think that was the right thing to do. Because the city is a space that holds all our memories, and we move through them every day. Whether we're driving through Mission Hills or crossing Troost on a bus or walking into the Nelson Atkins, we have to look at all of it without flinching to find a space where we all belong. Thanks for listening to A Frame of Mind, the podcast of the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. Next up, we're going to look even more closely at the land the museum sits on and some carvings on the outside of the building that are hard to look away from. This episode was co-written and produced by me and Christine Murray with editing and sound design by Brandy Howell. The voices you heard were Congressman Emanuel Cleaver II, Dove Beatty, Jake Wagner, Eric Stafford, Angel Tucker, Julian Zugazagoida, Tara Laver, and Chaluba Masunda. Interview recording by Tim Hart and studio engineering by Simpson Sound Lab. Fact-checking by Kate Carpenter. Our theme music is by The Black Creatures. Additional music from Eclipse. Our cover art is by Two-Tone Press. If you like this episode, please leave us a review. It'll help other people find us. This podcast is produced with generous support from Bank of America N.A., trustee of the John W. and F.E.E. Spees Memorial Trust. See you next time.